Hello and welcome to Get Your Play On, the industry podcast for playwrights and theatre makers. I'm Sam Brady. And I'm Ginny Manning. We got very excited, didn't we, Ginny, about this episode because of our guest, the legend, Simon Stevens. <laughs> yeah, we did. I think we were both a little bit starstruck at the start of it. Yeah. But um, but then reality hit because we had quite a um, a definite amount of time to speak to him, didn't we? So we had to. <laughs> we did. We had to get on with it and not be too like, oh hello. Oh. I so know, I think that's yeah. Re- yeah. I think I mean I think that's still reflected a bit in our. Uh, in our questions and in the interview um but he was just so lovely wasn't he he was just so lovely. yeah 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 and um it felt like he was interviewing us at one point didn't it <laughs> he yeah. did well he totally turned it around and yeah, said well, yeah. what do you think <laughs> and yeah and I, I think I was kind of like oh well we can talk about that later but he was just, yeah. <laughs> he really wanted to know what we thought um yeah yeah but it was an interesting interview as well wasn't it because it was uh, at a very particular time yeah. Um. Before any of the news had come through for, about any help from the government, so I think that comes through in the interview, in that we were talking about the importance of theatre quite a lot yeah. and, and the importance of creativity. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, um, like you could listen to this anytime. So mm. this was recorded during the COVID nineteen lockdown in summer 2020 let's hope that there's not been others since <laughs> yeah. you're not listening to this thinking oh yeah that very first one yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah sorry Absolutely. it was that but before the government announced any help for theater so we were very in very uncertain times weren't we yeah okay well i can't wait to hear it again so let's go on with it let's So how's uh, how's lockdown been treating you generally? Yeah, I think I'm really going to miss it. I thought I was, I was walking my dog yesterday, uh, and um, you know I've just been doing this the same dog walk every day for four months, uh, and being in the same uh, I've been in the same neighbourhood for four months, uh, and that's an entirely exceptional experience in my adult life. I've not been in the same place for four months since I was about 16. Um, and as, as it's incrementally and, uh, you know, exponentially loosened and become noisier, uh, and more, uh, more chaotic, the gangs have started coming out again. The fights have started on our street again. The police are doing things other than moving people on again. I've been really lucky, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. Because um, we're healthy. Everybody that I know is healthy. Everybody that I love is healthy. Uh, so that's very, very fortunate in that sense. Um, but uh, and 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 we're we're lucky because you know we've got space in the house and and um, that's really fortunate. We've got a dog and dogs are great in lockdown. That's that's the reason why there was a big outburst of of lockdown puppies. Um, uh, and the kids are home. My eldest is 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 he's back home from university. Um, so there's five of us in the house and we kind of largely like each other and we've got space to hang out. So it's been, it's been, it's been good. It's, you know, it's, I, I really feel like I'm going to kind of miss it. But, yeah, I know. I think a few of us feel like a bit institutionalized by it. We're not quite sure how we're going to sort of go out blinking into real life. Afterwards. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you in London, Sam? No, I'm in Warrington. 
Right. Um, and I'm shielding because I've got a heart condition. Oh, nice. So me and my wife haven't left the house for three months, uh, which has been better than you would expect, like you said. We've declared our house the People's Republic of Denver Drive, and we're, we're completely independent from, you know, we're a bit reliant on imports, a bit like Iceland in that respect. But other than that, we're doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm in Liverpool, in the suburbs of Liverpool. But I was recently joined by my sister, my niece, and four dogs. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, a bit, a bit of, a bit of, um, are they, are they stayed there with you? All yeah, six? yeah, they, yeah, we, they're not here right now because it can be a little bit problematic <laughs> when you're recording a podcast, but they're cockapoos, you know, cockapoos, so they're all gorgeous. Yeah, like, I've got really... a cockapoo. Oh, have you? Yeah, our dog's a cockapoo. Yeah. Oh, God, they're like, the best, aren't they? I like the idea of four of them. Oh, yeah. Well, they're all, I mean, they're all very different. Anyway, I could talk about cockapoos for the whole time. So. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> Relax. Really like that. <laughs> so, Simon, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so sorry that you've had the, the technical difficulties. Don't but worry. But you're here it. now. Don't We've got to. Get you away for the uh, Man United game. Um, I don't know the, so, way, the way the the way the matches have been going for pretty much everybody apart from City. Uh, you may as well miss the first sixty-five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's kinda, it's sixty-five minutes of sideward passing and, uh, yeah, yeah. and lack of, uh, any lack of incision. I think. Yeah, well, I'm a Wigan Athletic supporter, so but I, I did have the very amazing experience of celebrating two goals the other day which has been a rarity not just in lockdown but ever <laughs> so it was an amazing feeling to celebrate a goal it was like oh, i'd forgotten what that was like <laughs> so anyways simon um we're let, let's start talking about theater and stuff so you're known for your, your successes you know, all around the world from the Royal Court and stuff in Germany and the West End and Broadway. And you don't have to chase opportunities, maybe the way that me and Ginny and some of our listeners have to do. Um, but that wasn't always the case, was it? Um, you sort of have been there in terms of uh, your early career trying to get work on. Yeah. And I, you know, there's, um, I, I don't think the chase ever really stops. I hate to tell people. No, <laughs> it's never. Uh, it's it's never straightforward. It's never been kind of straightforward. Um, I, I think there's a lot of myths and kind of like uh, uh, misapprehensions and stories told about how writers work that aren't necessarily helpful. And one of which is is the kind of great myth of the of the breakthrough play, the kind of the first play. Um, and, and people kind of tell the story, you know, I don't think many people do tell this story, but on the rare occasion that anybody might tell the story of my working life, they might decide to start with Bluebird, which was ostensibly my first professional play, which produced in 1998 at the Royal Court Young Writers Festival. Uh, but Bluebird wasn't my first play. You know, it was my eighth play. I'd written seven plays before that that were variously produced at, by students at university or um, were produced uh, in tiny fringe theatres, or were just not produced at all. Were, were fundamentally the life they had was to re was to be rejected by by you know by by the producing theatres. Um, so that I I decided I started writing plays um, 
at university. I left university when I was 21. Bluebird was produced when I was 27. So it's six and six and a half years of trying before I made my sudden breakthrough from nowhere. So yeah, yeah, it wasn't it, it kind of, I think that, there are a lot of myths and lies about the exciting breakthrough play, and I think that that's what they predominantly are. For me, it was kind of six years of work, and the work continues, you know. It's still not straightforward getting a play on anywhere, and will be less straightforward now than it's than it's been for a long time for, for, for everybody, I think. So in those, those early times then when you were trying to get work on, um, how was it when you – well, so your first – breakthrough was bluebird but so what what sort of led up to that then were you doing plays at university and yeah and well like that? actually uh the very 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 first play that i wrote was a uh a terrible play i think maybe not terrible. That's encouraging uh, it was um it was a monologue play based on uh a song by tom waits from his album swordfish trombones called frank's wild years and i basically took the story of tom waits's song and imagined it set in kind of stockport in the south of manchester uh and it's a story about a man uh, uh an alcoholic depressive husband who sets fire to his own house and kills his wife and dog inside it which is terrible it's really terrible Somebody, the brilliant playwright Alistair McDowell asked me what, um, asked me once what my, what my, uh, my very, very first play and my most recent play had in common. And I think, um, I think alcoholism and killing dogs is, seems to be a theme that runs through all of my work. <laughs> the alcoholism and murder. But I kind of, I, I, that was produced at York University when I went and did a, I did a history degree at York University. I was not really, I wasn't really, from the kind of family that would go to the theatre very often, we weren't a kind of like theatrical family uh, in in that degree in, in in that sense. We we would go um, at uh, Christmas perhaps every Christmas we'd go um, into we you know if you know the geography of Stockport and Manchester we'd kind of go into Manchester on a a weekday night and see like a commercial show in like the Manchester Palace or something a West End touring show. Perhaps we'd do that kind of, we did that maybe t- two or three times in my childhood. Um, uh, my mum and my uncle were both in amateur dramatic companies. So, uh, Altrincham Garrick and then the Heaton, Heaton Moor, West, West Heaton Tennis Club, amateur dramatic society my mum was in. So I went to see her do that kind of stuff. And my dad's mum was involved in, in, in musical theatre in Manchester, but, the, the drama I inherited, the drama I kind of was raised with was, was film and television drama yeah. in the kind of eighties. And, um, uh, I, I, I grew up kind of watching the films of David Lynch or Martin Scorsese, um, of the two I often talk about, Jim Jarmusch, um, uh, yeah, I love Jim Hartley. Huh? I love Jim Jarmusch too. Yeah, really beautiful films. Yeah. Um, and I guess the kind of live art that I most engaged with was, 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 was live music. Um, you know, I'd go in Manchester, obviously, like Liverpool and as a, as being in Warrington, you'll probably be aware of both cities having, cause there's certainly nothing happening in Warrington, but, but, <laughs> we're, but actually we were going to have a music festival, but damn it, coronavirus. <laughs> Oh no! We had a, we had a moment where we might have a cultural life, but no. But um, you know, you're, you're you're positioned happily between the between two real cities, 
So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the Manchester live music scene was something that I was really into when I was growing up. And then when I went to university, uh, I always tell this, it's always embarrassing. I'll say it again because it's true, although embarrassing. All the most attractive girls at York University uh, wanted to be actresses, kind of impossibly exotic and attractive, you know, kind of people from amazingly exciting places like Surrey and Kent. <laughs> and in a pathetic and misguided and ultimately entirely fruitless attempt to meet these girls, I'd go and watch them in their really terrible student productions of uh, a particularly vivid one was uh, a production of the real inspector hound that was kind of one of the worst kind of two hours of my entire life to that point but in watching it i did think this room is quite special this room is kind of remarkable you can imagine uh, a version of this room where instead of it being a dreadful student production of the real inspector hound it's uh it's it's something like blue velvet or taxi driver but you're live in the room like you are when you watch the fall or when you watch pixies or something you're live in the room i remember sitting watching thinking you could synthesize the two art forms that have most made sense of my life and create something uh quite exciting and fundamentally i started doing that at university and that's kind of all all i've done since yeah. At university, I wrote three plays that were uh, that I directed myself, and you know, it was just with student actors, and completely fell in love with the process of of making a play, writing a play, perform, you know, rehearsing them and having them performed in front of an audience. I was listening to an interview you did, Simon, um, about shows that had influenced you, and you spoke so eloquently about why theatre is important that I had a massive wave of loss I just it really touched me because of course this is all on our minds at the moment and what what do you think it was that was different about Bluebird the script of Bluebird that meant that it it it, you know you, you got to see it on a stage that's a really good question and there's part of me that thinks I'm the last person who's ever going to be able to answer that Maybe, gosh, nobody's ever asked me that. And it's hard talking about the characteristics or qualities of your own work, you know. Yeah. But it's it's the hardest thing for any artist to do is to assess the calibre of their own work. Okay. Well, maybe if I turn it around a little. Just because it's hard, I don't want to not answer it. I think um, when you practice something, you get better at it. Maybe it's as simple as that. Just when you do it again and again and again, in time, you improve. Maybe it's, uh, I mean, Bluebird was so, you talk about Jim Jarmusch, I'm enjoying Jim Jarmusch, Jenny. Um, Bluebird was so directly inspired by Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth. Yeah. You know, it's a place set in the back of a, of a cab. But let me, let me speculate about this. Now, this is interesting and this might be specious. It's entirely speculative. Uh, Bluebird was the first play that I wrote after my girlfriend, as was my wife, as is, um, was got pregnant. You know, she was pregnant. We were going to have a child. And when I look at my work, um, in comparison to my peers by age, you know, I'm for theatre geeks, I'm quite an anomaly because I kind of 
I had a breakthrough moment about two or three years after my peers by age. But when I look at that, like my work in comparison to say Sarah Kane's work or Mark Ravenhill's work or Anthony Nielsen, what's unusual about my plays is I bring the family back onto the stage. Yeah. I write characters with parents. And I think becoming a parent, uh, although Oscar wasn't born when I wrote Bluebird, uh, becoming a parent uh, led me to kind of dive a little bit deeper into my soul. And maybe in a way that I might not have been able to identify at the time, maybe that was the distinguishing thing. Yeah. I, th- I think for our, some of our, some of our listeners are um, perhaps like me have entered into the playwriting or the theatre industry when they're slightly older. Um, yeah. And I, I do think that your life experience and the diff- the way you change during your life is, informs your writing so much and I think that that yeah. that's basically yeah. what you're saying as well isn't it I, th- I think so and I think um you know there can be a lot of anxieties about fashions or trends or 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 biases in producing theatres and uh, w- w- one of the one of the anxieties can be that producing theatres aren't interested in plays written by writers who are starting later in life. I don't think that's true, actually. I, I don't think it's true that theatres aren't interested in plays by writers starting later in life. And I think there are, you know, there are many examples of playwrights who do, whose working life does start later. But um, for me, tapping, you know, tapping fearlessly onto a life that's been lived, you know, really looking honestly at yourself, I think maybe that's something that's a bit harder to do as we get older because the stories we tell ourselves of who we are become more ossified yeah so uh looking with real rigor at at our own truth might be harder when we're older but if you can do that the depth of those wells is much more considerable than some kind of 22 year old student who knows nothing about the world (laughs) yeah i think i think our develop our development of our sense of our own truth increases with our it has a, a relationship with our increase of empathy as well, doesn't it? And seeing other people's humanity, and that also informs our writing. Yeah, I think it can. I think it can. I think there are other people whose empathy thins as they age, mm-hmm. and and who who kind of like find it harder to to look outside worlds that they feel comfortable in. It's another reason why theatre is so essential. I think it's, for me, I think of theatre as being an empathy machine. You know, I think that's what it's for. The, f- the function of theatre is to exercise our empathy. It, it makes us better at being human. Yeah. So you, one of the things that you've talked about is how having a play produced it makes you a better writer and in some ways you can learn things from that that you can't learn from from other things what can you learn from seeing your play produced that perhaps you couldn't learn from workshops and courses and yeah i mean and i i really mean that but just to be really specific i would include self-production as that as as having a play produced and so there was there would be part of me that would almost encourage writers to lean into self-production instead of a reading or a workshop from a professionally produced theatre. What you learn is you learn uh, you learn the boring bits. You learn, <laughs> you know you learn. Well, audiences audiences kind of don't lie, really. 
you know, unless they're an audience of your mates, but then you need to be honest with yourself that the audience is made up of your mates, and then that's that's fine. Acknowledge and celebrate that. Is, our friends are great. That's why they're our friends. Yeah. But um, if you've got a paying audience, if you've got somebody who, who who's who's taking a punt on your play, and they're not happy, then they'll leave. Mm. You know, I learned so much about when um, when I was making the plays when I was uh, uh, in between leaving university and and. And having the work at the Royal Court, when I was self-producing the plays, you know, you'd get audiences of like six. I'd get audiences of six, and one of them would leave. But they don't leave like they leave my plays nowadays because they're shocked or appalled by the idea of swearing or violence. They're <laughs> they just bored, you know. Yeah. And they had better things to do. I'm yeah. sure I have memories of people leaving those self-produced plays and kind of like saying goodbye to me as they're walking out and apologising. And I do have a memory of somebody telling me that Coronation Street was on, so they needed to go and watch it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, but you learn, you either, you either get completely dispirited and stop writing altogether, or you kind of think about what makes a scene compelling. Yeah. What's the difference between something that feels good to write and something that sits well in an auditorium? You know, you learn about those speeches, and all of us write speeches um, that at the time of writing, we are completely aware we've probably written the greatest speech of 21st century drama, and then you speak it in a room full of audiences and just watch them baffled by boredom as to why this character has stopped acting, has stopped being, and it just suddenly started reflecting on something. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a great thing to learn that you only really get by putting something in front of an audience. Do you, do you actively um, watch the audience? Yeah, and still now, still now. I mean, this is a great advice of the the the, the magnificent Stephen Jeffries. I don't know if any of your listeners haven't got a copy of Stephen Jeffries' book, Playwriting, then they really need to get it now. Um, go to the the website of the local independent bookshop and get a copy of Playwriting delivered yeah. because it's. It's as wise a book about playwriting as you can get, and he's very big on watching the audience. I, I, um, you know, I don't do what he claims to have done, which is get a seat at the side of the auditorium and only watch the audience. But I learn a lot from audiences. I learn a lot about the rhythm of a show from an audience, or you know, the music. Where, where you learn about the relationship between the play and the world by paying attention to the audiences. What's interesting is if you if you then take a play to, you know, if if a plays on if a plays on several times, there'd be certain certain lines which are guaranteed to get a laugh, and your measure of that audience isn't whether or not you get a laugh; it's how loud the laugh is. Yeah. And so some audience, you know it's going to be a quiet night if you just get a little laugh and then the same line a few nights later gets a big laugh. You know what that audience is going to be. You take it to a different culture. We did this with Motortown and Waswater, which are plays that I did at the Royal Court in London. Um, when you then take, we took those plays to Vienna and lines which were guaranteed laugh lines would just fell dead in the audience. And then other lines which had never had a laugh before in London just brought the house down. <laughs> you know, there's a line in that play, a line in Motortown, which is to talk about the meaning of life is about as philosophically interesting as asking about the meaning of wood or the meaning of grass. Yeah. In Vienna, that brought the house down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> the audience, but you need to be alert that audience is a culturally specific phenomenon as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's it. That's the thing about learning, seeing lots of audiences and seeing that show in front of lots of different audiences. Mm. We were going to ask you, Simon, actually, because obviously at the moment, the one of the upsides of us all being attached to our computers is is that the world is actually enlarged online. And um, obviously, you've done international collaborations. Um, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about that process and the benefits of getting involved with um, other nationality artists and the difficulties of it, and whether you think it's something that's that's easier to pursue or is better to wait um, when you're more established. I wouldn't. I I, I wouldn't necessarily. Um think about being established or not because that when, when I think about somebody being established that like your introduction kind of makes me very nervous and that it makes me like one of my least favorite words in when talking about playwriting is the word career I think it's a really poisonous word I, d- I don't think people should ever use the word career unless it's talking about a chaotic movement you know, you can career around things, but um, I think it's a really, I think it's a really destructive word to apply to art. So I always kind of talk about my working life rather than my career. Uh, and in that sense, I wouldn't think about being established so much as perhaps being experienced. Yeah, like that might be slightly different. You know, what it's what it's like, and I know there's a there's a kind of like interest in football on this podcast, perhaps. Uh, what it's like is um do you remember in the 80s football in england people were very suspicious about foreign footballers uh because they did things differently mm-hmm. and then jürgen klinsmann and eric Cantona and Gianfranco zola and dennis bergkamp came and played in the premiership and it, people realized that the way we had always done things in english football was not necessarily the only way to do things the same thing happened with like food in the 70s and 80s, where people were very suspicious about foreign food. And now that, that, that I mean, I don't know, I, to me, that seems like a very unlikely thing to hear somebody complain about the idea of complaining about foreign food. I think the, the, I think what happens when you travel, what happens when you travel to eat or to watch football or to engage in art or anything is you realize that the way you've done things is not necessarily the only way to do them. And that's what I learned from making theater in Germany, specifically Germany. I think it's worth kind of distinguishing between that country and other countries because the nature of art in Germany is so specific, the level of funding, the level of state funding. But also what I realized the more I did it, is there are bigger questions about what theatre is for. I think it's one of one of the one of the key questions when you're making plays or when you're writing or acting or directing is what is theatre for? You know, there's part of me that kind of wants to ask both of you guys what you think theatre is for, but um, and that might be a bit rude to kind of flip on. <laughs> What's theatre for for you, Ginny? What is theatre for? Well, we'll we'll, dis- we'll discuss that in our um, in our introduction or follow up. We'll have a big chat about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I can, <laughs> I can, talk, right. I can on, talk about that forever. So you'll have to listen to the podcast <laughs> to find out. No, I can. <laughs> I could. I have actually. I've actually done um, a small piece for the Everyman about what theatre is for for me, and it was. 
it's very closely tied in with my personal journey through grief the the um not just the theater and the prep the the aspects of theater of escape and sharing other people's um practice and influences and, and experiences but actually the theater community and this is one of the reasons why it's absolutely essential that we we protect the theater and the, the government should protect the theater but yeah, that's really. my truncated answer simon yeah it's really beautiful and like really fundamental that it's a place to imagine and a place to a place of escape yeah a place of collaboration and a place of connection as well. And a, yeah, so that, that that's yeah, that sort of thing. The word that I always think of is communion, which I know has kind of got a religious thing, but kind of that sense of um, when when you're in the theatre and uh, the audience walk in as individuals, each with their own thoughts and worlds going on and everything. They sit down as separate people, and at some point during that performance, everyone is focused on the same thing, yeah. feeling the same emotions, experience, you know, and that that communion of bringing all those people together. Yeah. I don't know of anywhere else where that happens, really. Yeah, no, it, I know. I would completely share that, Sam. Uh, and and it is, you know, there are an, analogies with with religious service, and I'm not a religious person, and kind of described myself as an atheist when I was 13 and fundamentally haven't really changed my mind since then. What's fascinating then is going to work in Germany where theatre is for a very different function. Its function is very different. Um, uh, and, you know, to, uh, I don't want to get too geeky about historicising it, but it is rooted in the end of the Second World War. It's rooted in the, 19, in the moment in 1968 when the generation born at the end of the Second World War turned to their parents and asked them what on earth they were doing with their, with their history and with their lives and what they had done. And effectively in German culture from about 1968 onwards, theatre became like a naughty step. And rather than being a place of escape or uh, communion or, God forbid, entertainment, it became a place of confrontation and interrogation and provocation. And it was a difficult place of thought. Now, there's elements of that in British theatre, I think, but I would historicise British theatre as well, that it's a post-1945 thing, that theatre is, you know, so many of our theatres were, were built in the kind of mid-50s mid to mid-60s, a time when... Britain was trying to make sense of its past and its future, but in a way that was celebratory and encouraging, right? Yeah. We've done a remarkable thing in defeating fascism and something worth, you know, worth celebrating. Um, it, what I learned by traveling abroad was that assumption is not innately so, that all actors don't need to pretend to be human beings for a while, that all speech doesn't need to be a bit like how people speak in life. Um, that all plays don't need to be built around stories. Okay, so we just have to interrupt the interview for a second because at this point we had a technical hitch and I lost my internet, which meant that the recording was interrupted. Um, so just to help us segue into the next bit then, while I was out of the room, Ginny, what were you two talking about? Well, I'd been to see Seawall at the Old Vic um, a couple of years ago and he was there 
and I saw him I was standing outside the theatre afterwards I walked out and I was absolutely devastated because it's just so beautiful and moving um so I just told him the story that he was there and I was too shy to go and speak to him so instead I went and had an um a, a selfie with Andrew Scott <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's pick up the conversation from there Of all the things that I've done in my work, I think that show has a very, very special place in my heart. Yeah, and I can't really articulate why. And it is on some level, it is to do with my relationship with Andrew. Uh, on one, on a basic level, he's an extraordinary actor. Yeah, he is. You know, an incredibly talented. Just the the technique is breathtaking. And the intelligence and the compassion and the commitment. Like he's so hardworking. All of those things, just yeah, glorious. But there is something which I can't articulate about what happens between me and him that yeah. feels akin to love in some way. And there's something about that play because it was written very quickly. And it is a religious play, you know. It's a, I mean, so much of my stuff. My, my son kind of accuses me of being an atheist Christian. <laughs> there's something there's something in that because it's I think the other bit in that play which speaks a lot about this atheist Christianity is the moment when finally Arthur the father-in-law um, talks about where God is and there's that bit about he's in the space between two numbers yeah. he's in the way some people walk he's in the light falling on the city at the start or the end of the day all of a sudden, that version of God seems to be something that, as a lifelong atheist, I can recognise. The unspeakable magic uh, that somehow seems to be there. And yeah. I think it defines theatre. And, you know, Ginny, you talk about the fundamental importance of this art form. It's a fundamental element of human experience. The fact that together we are more than the sum of our individual constituent parts. The yeah. fact that we can believe in things that aren't that we can't see. We can commit completely to believing stories. In Seawall, there's a moment in Seawall when the character Alex and played normally by Andrew Scott, Tom Sturridge played it in New York and played it magnificently. He talks about having a hole running through the centre of his stomach. And he says, you can probably see it. You know, even in this light, you can probably see my hole. And I swear for a moment, everybody in that room can see a hole running through his stomach, even though we know it's not there. Yeah. You know, because we can believe in things that we can't see. And if we diminish that, if we make the decision as a nation to diminish our imagination and our capacity to share experience and to empathize, then we destroy ourselves. And, you know, we're in this remarkable time. You started off asking me how my lockdown's been. I'm 49 years old. It's been the most remarkable thing that I've ever lived through. It might be premature to believe that we're, we're, we're coming through it, you know, and there will be more people will die and there will be more illness and there may be a second spike and economically the country will be scarred by this for years and years. But I think we'll live through it. I don't. Th I think everything that has ever happened has ended, and this will end. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and I think I think when it ends, 
as a nation, there are many things that we will need. We will need nurses and we will need doctors and we will need teachers really fundamental things. We will need people to, to, to work on the food supply line. We'll need supermarket shelf stackers. <laughs> you know, and I did that when I was 17. I never thought that I was doing the most important work that I would ever do in my life was putting those tins of tuna fish on the heat and more branch of gateways. <laughs> it might have been. But we will need as much as that. We will need our storytellers. We'll need our storytellers to make sense of what animal we are and where we've been and where we're going and, and what happened. You know, you know, when people, when people have a, when people experience trauma or emergency in their life, when people experience, you know, something bad happens or something amazing happens, um, that when you talk to people, when you talk to somebody about that, the thing that they will say to you, the thing they will say to you is what happened? What happened? What happened? What we, the way we make sense of our experience is through the stories we tell one another of who we are. And, and that is what we'll need as we come through this, as we come through this remarkable time. We will need our storytellers. We'll need our imagination. Well, Simon, that's really inspirational, and I can see it's time for Man United. Come on, United! Uh, <laughs> because your family are calling you. Yeah. But, uh, which is very good of them. You've got a great supportive family who will drag you out for the football. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simon. Uh, it's Simon. a shame we had a, a lot more things we wanted to ask you. We could talk to you forever, but thank you. It's a real thank pleasure. So I'm so sorry. so sorry it's truncated. It's really, really nice to speak to you guys. It was yeah, really, thank gonna... you. I'm going to go off and have a big cry now. You've been really <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, good crying. man, you win. Yeah. <laughs> I have you a Liverpool or an Everton fan? Liverpool, of course. I don't think you've but, got anything to cry about this season. No, yeah. I know. I to, be, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I couldn't say I was an expert. I, I'm just a, like a member of the Liverpool family. I'm, I'm definitely not a, a, like, anyway, but. Enough to know that we can't like applaud Man U very much, really. <laughs> All right, thank you. Need to know. Love, Thanks a lot, you guys. Yeah, so that was really nice, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, God, he, he's really clever, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Every word, yeah, every single word is gold, isn't it? I, I, um, I, it took me a couple of days to recover from this interview, I think, because I just found him so inspiring and, um, and he kind of helped me play. I hope he does this for our listeners too. He, he kind of helped me refocus on our role as creatives and the importance of our role and the importance mm. of, of theatre. Um, and he was, he was just so down to earth in terms of, dealing with lockdown as well so hopefully people are listening to this lockdown's all over and we're all okay but what I really liked about um even at the very start of the conversation was when he was just chatting about walking around and staying in one place and using that Mm. um because I found it so important that what what possibly has become negative being in lockdown could be reseen as an opportunity to to think and to reobserve um our environment, which, you know, sometimes we get quite um, single-minded in our writing, don't we? And mm. we kind of forget that there's a world going on out there as well that that can assist our creativity. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's just about kind of really responding to what's going on rather than wishing it would go away and wishing it was different. Yeah. It takes time, I think, doesn't it? 
to kind of respond to it. I mean, I feel kind of like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to absorb all of this and reflect it in my work. Yeah. At the moment, I'm writing uh, as if this all never happened. Like in my... <laughs> yeah, in my, I think so. In my work, in my writing, it's yeah. like COVID doesn't exist yet. Yeah. It hasn't quite... Yeah, I haven't processed it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's going to be really interesting. At the, at the moment, I feel like an enormous amount of change is on its way. Mm. And I don't just mean like... Um, nationally or even globally I just mean personally as creatives Mm. we're going through something extraordinary and trying to continue to be creative and invent and reflect is particularly difficult but what what I liked about Simon was that he he kind of has taken it in his stride a bit and it's just another type it's another type of 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 like inspiration and stimulation so I think that's a positive way to look at it yeah and I love this inspirational message at the end yeah, about after all this, too. we're going to need storytellers. And you can hear that sometimes and you can think like, it can sound a bit up its own ass, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I am a storyteller, you know, mm. but, but actually it is true. It yeah. is true. It's like, what is being human all about if it's not trying to make sense of who we are and our world and, and how we live yeah. by sharing stories it is absolutely fundamental yeah so yeah i thought that was brilliant and he expressed it brilliantly didn't he he did in yeah. terms of what we're all trying to do yeah it's the truth that we can have faith in and live by isn't it it is yeah i think yeah. especially in uncertain times yeah i liked the fact that he discussed um international collaborations as mm. well i think that that it's okay to start thinking about that and to start thinking about opening up your world if you're interested in that. Um, And he had good advice about it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And I wonder, actually, if that might be something that more of us do post this lockdown experience. Mm. Now that everybody around the world has got used to um, talking to each other online and video conferencing Mm. and online workshops and, and all of that, it kind of breaks down a lot of boundaries it doesn't it and borders and i wonder if more international opportunities might open up yeah i hope so i mean i you know i i was lucky because i got involved with with my um co-writer lalu makuku in um Mm. south africa and did that project for for two or three years and we were actually going to do a workshop about it um because it was quite an extraordinary thing that we had done that and able to maintain that to make Uh, the play um, and won an international playwriting <laughs> well, prize as well. Like, you know, I'll just mention that because I know you're, well. you're too humble <laughs> well, thank you. to drop that one in. <laughs> but but actually what's great is is that we can all do this now and um, there are plenty of international um, artists out there. I think it's just finding a way to reach them. Mm. Um, and it's time. It's not necessarily paid time, but it's always worthwhile time if you can do it to, you know, to... to expand your horizons like that um and just make friends we're part of a global family as writers um and as theater makers we really are we've got something in common with with people all over the world we could start a conversation with them and have something in common straight away and that's something that we we should appreciate about ourselves yeah brilliant Uh, you're right really good point well i guess that's it for this episode and we've got some more fantastic guests coming up soon 
And as always, if you can go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, it really helps put us up the ratings, which means that more people notice us, more people listen to us, and the more uh, subscribers that we've got and the more listeners we've got, the more stuff we can do. So it all uh, helps all of us. Do subscribe if you haven't already, and please tell your friends about the podcast. So that's all from us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. Thank you.